all right, I've got to make this work. I've cut the cord. Now I have to learn everything I need to learn very, very quickly. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Worked. This week, I'm joined by Ryan McManus. Ryan is the founder and CEO of Share Mobility. Share Mobility empowers businesses, municipalities, and mobility organizations with software and solutions that equip workforces and communities with reliable transportation options. Ryan is a two-time founder. Previous to starting Share Mobility, he founded Content Via to help tech startups with all things marketing. And let me tell you, Ryan has a story to tell. We talked about upskilling as a CEO, the benefits of taking venture capital. You know, oftentimes you hear, be careful on taking venture capital. And Ryan really painted a different picture on this one. I thought it was really interesting. And how to get your customers to think differently. He gave such a good example of this. And if you're familiar with the Challenger sale, I know I've brought this up quite a bit on the podcast and other interviews because it's by far my favorite sales methodology. The example he gave is one of the best use cases of that in action. Now, Ryan and Share Mobility have rebounded from losing 96% of revenue. It's not a stretch to say that very few companies bounce back from that. And he didn't spare any detail on what this was like, how it impacted everybody, and also how they pulled it off. One thing is beyond clear. He is passionate about the problem they are solving. So when you hear the full story, it's hard to be surprised that they pull that off as crazy as that sounds. So with that, let's jump into the show. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, Callan, what's up? Good morning. I'm excited to be here. We're at the Idea Foundry in Columbus. So for our listeners outside of Columbus, this means nothing to you. If you're in Columbus and you haven't been down here, I highly recommend checking it out. This is so cool. I appreciate you giving me the tour. This place is a really, really important to me and my own entrepreneurial journey. I'm really glad to have Share Mobility back in this building. I'm glad we could record here. It's such a great facility. There's so much innovation happening here. And it was the place I started my first business. Which I'm excited to dive into. This would be a great place to start a business. So like to paint the picture, there's tons of room. There's, it's like, it's kind of like an old factory, but on the first floor, this is what's so interesting is I found this super interesting. There's like lathes and saws and all sorts of woodworking equipment that I had no idea because as somebody that's like considering trying some of these things, like, okay, I could take a class to learn this instead of sawing my hand off. Yeah, the Idea Foundry is a makerspace and Alex Bandar started it, whatever, it was probably early 2010s. And as I'm aware, it was a group of people with tools that were sharing a small garage and then it just grew and grew and grew. And now if you want to learn woodworking or welding or 
you want to learn how to use a lathe or any type of tool, you can come in, take classes, become a member, and then rent the tools to make stuff. And there's people downstairs that are building their business by using these tools. And I found this to be a great place because I could meet makers that needed help with marketing. That's interesting. So tell us a little bit about, about Share Mobility. Share Mobility started in 2016, and I just wanted to be a part of the automotive industry's evolution from motors to mobility. And I saw how car sharing, electrification, autonomy were going to change the way we move, and I wanted to be a part of that. We got a concept investment from Jaguar Land Rover in the beginning that allowed us to explore what is the biggest opportunity for us where we could win in Columbus, Ohio. Fast forward through the pandemic, we've found that frontline workers can't get to work and, and transportation is the biggest barrier to employment today. And so Share Mobility is focused on helping companies provide transportation as an employee benefit. So to circle back real quick, when you say concept funding, what do you mean by that specifically? It was a pure idea that wasn't incorporated yet when we received our first investment. So they invested in you to say, hey, this is a pretty interesting idea. We want you guys to flesh this out a little bit more. I think it was, this is an interesting team and we want to make a bet to see, can this team work in our incubator and come up with something interesting and valuable? That's super interesting. How, okay, so if somebody's out there right now, how would they even go about doing this? I think because I've heard a number of these stories that are similar. I actually had no idea that that's how share mobility was created. How did you find that? Well, let's step back first. So there's a couple of different ways to start a business. Some entrepreneurs are inventors and they create a thing first, and then they go out and try to find ways to market that and find a customer for their thing. That's not the type of entrepreneurship that I do. The other side is to look at a problem and say, I'm going to build a business around this specific problem, your problem first company. Or you could be an industry first company where you say, all right, I'm going to build on the industry. I'm going to look to find problems in this industry, and then I'm going to build around that. And so we were an industry first company where we first picked mobility as our industry. And then we spent about a year in stealth mode trying to find the biggest opportunity for us to pursue. That's interesting. So you guys, you like the industry and you felt that there were some areas that you can kind of explore in this area. Is that correct? Thought it was going to be as big as the internet in the 1990s. Yeah. And I still do. What was the passion behind that? What drove that? So I really like cars. I really like transportation. I started car sharing a Tesla early in 2016. And so I got this firsthand experience about how you could take a really expensive asset, share it with other people and basically get use of it for free. But I saw that a lot of the innovation in the automotive industry was designed for the affluent. You know how like plasma TVs were super expensive and now a flat screen TV is super cheap. A lot of times the innovation starts out and it's really only for the affluent. And that's what I was seeing. Things like scooters, they're not for somebody who can't afford a car. Mm -hmm. Scooters are a real privilege. It's fun to have. I think it's a great addition to mobility, but it's not for somebody that can't afford a car today. And I wanted to build a business for the people that didn't have reliable transportation. Really interesting. So I want to circle back to this, but where did your career start just in general? My very first job, I was, uh, I wore a costume around a Kroger store and I was like uh, in-store marketing. That was my very first job. But what you're really asking is like, where did my professional career start? I don't know. I might be asking this specifically. Yeah. I was a Keebler elf. <laughs> uh, I was a banana. I was an apple. My brother and I did it. We were like 14 
we got our first jobs working at uh, a Kroger store as characters. So I guess I've always been in marketing. My first professional job out of college was at a Swiss company, Kern, the US headquarters in Columbus. And I was their first marketing intern. And I kind of worked my way up doing various marketing and sales roles. And I got to see the mailing industry as it declined. And my mentor at Kern taught me about glide path businesses. And I watched from 2007 to 2012 as the industry this company was in started to decline. And I saw how competitors were evolving. I saw how our company was evolving. And I saw this pattern of glide path businesses. What's that mean? When you say glide path businesses, what does that mean specifically? So think about office printers, right? If you're Xerox or Canon, one of those Rico, Rico or, yeah. you're trying to maximize profits out of that line of business as fewer and fewer people are needing it, right? And so what you try to do is maximize revenue without investing in new products, maybe find new products to move your company into. But what you're trying to do is extend the life of that business as far as possible as it goes away inevitably. Interesting. Do you think a lot of those companies are using more? Are you familiar with like the McKinsey Horizons? Not firsthand, but tell me more about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested. So the McKinsey Horizons are you essentially have Horizon 1, Horizon 2, Horizon 3. Horizon 1, core business. Horizon 2 is emerging business. So this is a business that has been pretty well incubated and maybe have the first couple customers on it and will be additive, will eventually move into the core business. And then Horizon 3 is looking five, 10 years plus down the line where it's an idea stage. We're incubating this. We're even seeing if there's even something here. But the whole purpose of this is is that these three horizons are constantly moving and you're building these different business units as a result of it. Did you see any of that going on or was it really just, we know what's going on, the ship's too big to turn at this point, so we're just gonna ride this thing out? It was that this ship is going down eventually and let's keep it afloat as long as possible. How did that impact kind of your viewpoint just in general? I saw it happening in the automotive industry. I saw that the automakers were trying to extend the life of their investments in factories and gasoline vehicles, but they saw that new technologies were ex disrupting their existing business. Do you think that you would have started this business that you did today if you didn't have that experience? No, not a chance. The understanding of glide paths and evolving industries led me to the automotive industry. Gotcha. Very interesting. So was it after Kern that you started your first company? Yeah, I left there in February of 2012, and I had already started building a marketing agency. And so I went from being a marketing director into my own marketing agency, which was called Content Via. And all we did was help founders go from idea to first customer. What kind of led you to founding that company? What was the spark in that one? I worked for someone who believed that anything you came up with was his property. And so I could not build a product-based company. I had to start with a services-based company that had no value to them. I had to take my knowledge and move into a different industry where there was nothing that they may have wanted. Interesting. So the problem you were having wasn't even so much the problem of I see this, and you may have seen the opportunity, but it wasn't a problem you were, because you know, oftentimes, as you had mentioned, people experience a problem and then they go into starting that company. For you, your problem was that 
you couldn't do what you wanted at that point. So you had to do this in a different way, but you knew you wanted to found something. And this was kind of your opportunity to do that. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I always knew as an entrepreneur, I wanted to build a high growth technology business, but that was not something that could be my first business. Interesting. How did you come to that decision? Just in general? I watched another employee who their invention was taken away from them. I saw it happen. And this was somebody that I talked about ideas with on the side. And I saw how his idea was taken away from him and he got nothing. And I said, one, this is not something that I want to be a part of. And two, I need to make a clean break or else I could end up in the same fate as him. Interesting. So you founded your company. Did you have clients going into that or did you just, was this from day one, we're just going to figure this out? No, I had clients already. Okay. And so I started using Elance at the time to find marketing clients. And I found clients all across the country. And within about two months, I had signed up enough clients to replace my income, waited for that annual bonus check to clear. And then I put in my two weeks notice. What was the feeling on day one of you're in this full time? I wish I would have planned more. You know, you think you're ready and then you make the leap and you're like, there's so much I still need to learn. In hindsight, had that prevented me from doing it, I may still be an employee somewhere. So I think it was more like, all right, I've got to make this work. I've cut the cord. Now I have to learn everything I need to learn very, very quickly. How did you go about doing that? I started networking. I mean, that's how I ended up here at the Idea Foundry. I was getting an MBA at Ohio State. I learned about venture capital. Someone from NCT Ventures came in to talk about venture capital. Dr. Camp helped introduce me to other entrepreneurs, and I started to learn from them. When you think of that first company, what was the, would you say, is probably the most important thing that you had to learn? How to replace yourself so that you can scale. And so I started building the business solo where I was doing all of the functions and I didn't start with an idea of how I would replace myself in that business and ultimately it made it so that my first company was not saleable it was a pure services business I wish I would have learned more about building processes delegating hiring people maybe as contractors first and not full-time employees and to build a business that runs without you so there's a couple of things I'd love to dive into there. So when you say it's not saleable, is that is it because it was too reliant on you? So if somebody had to, like, if somebody did buy it, that means that you got to come with, you're pretty much there for, you may have a, a very long earn out if you're going to do that and it doesn't make it as attractive. Is that what you mean by that specifically? Yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, there wasn't recurring revenue that would make it attractive, but I was very dependent in the job for serving the customers and delivering the services. Gotcha. And one thing I want to hit on in particular is when you say salaried versus contractors and starting with contractors, why is that important? I'll tell you on my side, I like one, I think I just found that you can find really, really good contractors. And with the service business, it takes a while before you have predictability. Did you find something similar or what did that look like for you? What I found is that because I went the salaried route, I had to constantly go and sell new customers to ensure that I had enough to cover the salaried employees. And in the type of business we chose to start, 
we really needed to be pickier. And as we added more and more salaried employees, we had to say yes to companies that we maybe didn't believe in or we weren't excited about. Yeah. So the power of kind of narrowing your focus on your ideal customer profile, because if I'm hearing you correctly, it's because we immediately had people that had salaries, we couldn't really resource plan for a specific project. We had to get new sales in no matter what. And unless you've got a big pipeline and people are coming to you pretty consistently, that can become really challenging because you just like, it's either sell the next deal or miss payroll. Is that correct? Correct. Gotcha. Which probably, I got to assume that put a ton of stress on you specifically. And it's stress that could have been avoided if I just built a network of contractors that could have worked the jobs. Yeah. One of the things I've heard, I'm curious how, you know, kind of given your experience, how you'd approach this now, but one of the couple of the things I really liked was I've heard two pieces of advice on this I thought were excellent. One, when you're thinking about full-time employees just in general, in a service business specifically, take a look at, you know, what is our pipeline? And when you close the deal, you hire into the backlog. So I've got a good backlog of projects. I know I can sustain the people that I brought on. And two, probably the one I love the most, now these aren't mutually exclusive, is your full-time employees are essentially make up the bare minimum that you're going to be able to do at all times, right? And that bare minimum as you grow and as you naturally get more referrals and your sales process becomes more predictable, that floor grows, but essentially you use contractors for the peaks. And of course, in the beginning, it's all peaks and valleys. So you're using contractors for those peaks because you have no idea what that floor is. What did you learn in kind of how you could go about that? Like if you were to do that again in a service business, how would you do that differently? So if I were to go and do this again, I would build a team of individuals who saw themselves as running their own business, where we were a group going out to find customers together. Yeah. We may have our own projects. We may come together for a project. And I think that gives the individuals working on the project more ownership of it. Gotcha. So in your eyes, it's more, we're all going out. In, especially in the early stages, we're all going out, we're all selling, and we may have our different functions internally, but everybody's responsible for getting out there, being in the field. Do you think, you know, in a situation like that, I'm actually just kind of curious to get your opinion. Are those all, you know, partners in some level within the business in those early stages? They could be. I probably wouldn't have done it that way. I would have just viewed it as like friends who are working together on projects. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so you did this for about three years, is that right? Yeah, we three or four years. Gotcha. And then from there, that's when you started Share Mobility. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I like to say that Content Via incubated the early ideas of Share Mobility, and the first team members of Share came from Content Via. Tell us about that a little bit. What did that process look like? Was this something that you just couldn't put? down, right? Like you just couldn't put this idea off and you just kind of had to do it. What did that look like? The opportunity to pitch an idea to the Jaguar Land Rover incubator was really the driving force behind this starting. Had that not been there, had there not been the seed funding, I don't know that I would have pursued it because it was so ambitious. How did you find them? Or did they find you? Or what did that look like? My friend Rob Coons connected me. He was a classmate from Ohio Dominican, and he connected me with somebody that was working in the incubator and helped get our application in and read. Interesting. And so just kind of a, a random connection from a friend got in there. 
Got it. Was it an easy decision for you to say, uh, we need to go after this? Or was that really challenging? What did that look like, that kind of evaluation process? I didn't really overthink it at the time. My wife tells this story really good where, you know, in May I came home and was like, hey, I pitched this idea. It probably isn't going to go anywhere. And then the next week I was like, well, I talked to them and they actually like it. <laughs> and then the next week it was like, well, we might need to move to Portland in a month. And it, it all happened really quickly. But it, it was the next step that I wanted to take as an entrepreneur to go from a service business to a product business. And it felt like the best opportunity I had. So it was like, it, it's like when was it the Derek Sivert's hell yes or no? Like this was a hell yes for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. It was not a hard decision on whether I should do it or not. Okay. So you go into this, you've now are getting into the venture capital space. How was that different than what you'd experienced at the previous company that you founded? Yeah. I mean, it's still people serving a problem. You have to capitalize the business. The biggest difference, I think, is that when you're running your own company, you can choose how to make revenue in any type of way. When you go down the path of a venture capital-based business, you're presenting a specific type of business and you're getting them to back a specific type of future that you're trying to create. And so it's not okay to just make any type of revenue. You have to build a specific type of revenue because that's the commitment you've made to the investors. So the difference is when you don't have investors, it's we can grow, iterate this however we choose, which there's pros and cons to that. And then when you're raising money, whether that's venture capital angel, really just taking on outside investors just in general, it's we have a purpose. We have to optimize towards this purpose because we're really beginning with the end in mind because we're looking at what this market is and everything else. Is that essentially correct? Yeah, very much so. And now you have an external partner who's helping you set timelines and goals, and it gives you an, an outside guide point that I think is really helpful. As a solo entrepreneur, sometimes you don't have that guidance and input. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced as you're growing this and I would say in the early stages, the first couple years of doing this, what were those, those kind of initial challenges? One of the biggest challenges we had was external failures that impacted the impressions of our business. So when we first started, we competed with a company called Ford Chariot, and they were viewed as like the biggest, they were part of Ford. And then after the first year of competing, they shut down. How come? What happened? Oh, there's a lot behind it. We'll just say that it was competing interests with an automaker that you can't compete with your own customer. Mm. And if you have a services business doing transportation and you sell vans to companies doing transportation, you're competing with your own customer. And that's probably why they didn't continue it. But they did a huge PR campaign about why that business did not work. And so we ended up having to spend a lot of time early on explain why we're not doing what the ride-sharing companies were, how we could build a profitable business, how we were going to make something work when a major company like Ford couldn't make it work. How did that impact? I'm actually curious about two things. How did that impact getting new customers? How did that impact the employees internally? I don't think it impacted the employees internally at all. I don't think they had a lot of awareness to those external companies, and I don't think a lot of the negative perceptions were aimed at them in any way. So I don't think it, it affected them. If anything, it was probably like fuel. Like, yeah. oh, let's get fired up. We can do this. If they can't do it, we can do this. It did affect the customers because we were always, one, explaining how we're different because there was a trust factor that we had to get them to overcome. And 
why we were going to be able to make something work when a large company couldn't. Interesting. So what did you guys do from there? We just kept winning deals. I think in the first year, we maybe only lost one account to Chariot. And just by consistently winning deals, we were able to prove that we had the right solution. How did that feel? Oh, every time you sell, it feels good. You know, there's nothing better than selling. And it's the kind of validation we seek as entrepreneurs that your idea works. So you've got some good traction, closing deals. You're going against a pretty serious headwind. And then there's a PR campaign as to why, yes, it's, it's why this company didn't work. But really, it's why these companies can't work is the message, if I'm understanding that correctly. So you've got all these headwinds that you're going into getting traction. COVID hits. Tell us that story. March 18th, we lost 96% of revenue in one day. And prior to COVID, we worked with schools, senior communities, companies, and cities. We had way too many customer types, but within a couple of days, all of them shut down. And we had to step back and say, how long is this going to last? We thought it'd be only be a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And do we still have the business that we thought we had? Because clearly product market fit was gone. And we needed to decide, do we continue with all of the unknowns or is this the right time to shut it down? I was and still am in love with this business and the need for it to exist. And so despite that hardship, we rallied the team and said, we've got to find what business we can serve in this current world. And let's assume it never goes back to the normal that we knew. Let's assume nobody ever goes into the office again. Let's assume that people are going to continue to social distance. Who's still moving in April of 2020? And what we saw that there were people going to do cleaning of buildings. They needed rides. The bus wasn't available for them anymore. And we saw people going to manufacturing and logistics at the height of the pandemic when no one else had to go to work. If you were working a production line to build auto parts or you were involved in boxing up uh, packages for e-commerce, there was a huge need for people. And we found that share mobility actually helps your company fill jobs. And we had a bunch of value propositions. And it was because of COVID that we learned that our value proposition was that we help companies fill jobs. And if you can offer transportation, instead of saying it's on you, Everybody has to have their own transportation. If you can say, we have transportation for you, there is a huge pool of people that can become your employees. Super interesting. So if I could just recap that real quick, what I'm hearing is lost 96% of revenue. Yep. And what, what actually ended up happening was, you know, when you kind of took a step back and said, all right, do we shut this down? Do we do this? If we're going to do this, who needs mobility? Who needs to get from point A to point B right now? Really interesting considering I wouldn't like one of the one in particular, I think that you mentioned the cleaning supplies, like that one or, or not clean or cleaning jobs, like that makes total sense. I guess what I wouldn't have considered was the e-commerce and being in some of these, you know, these factories, these distribution centers and things like that. And if I'm hearing you, it is they live in areas that aren't necessarily the easiest to get to. The company's saying, Hey, if you can get here, we'd love to have you. And what you're saying is we're gonna flip this a little bit and say, we're going to provide you with a service that's going to expand your recruiting pool and your ability to be able to pull skilled workers, talented workers in. Is that correct? Yep. 
what was that roller coaster like, right? This roller coaster from we lost 96% of our revenue and now we've found this gap. We've really narrowed our focus, kind of narrowed for you. What did that feel like? Well, it felt very good to find product market fit in a difficult environment. And we felt like there was going to be that need for a long period of time. And then we found this research about called the Sandsdemic. And it talked about the impact of baby boomers retiring, the decline in birth rates over the last 20 or 30 years, and young people's desire for time and experiences over things. And all of this added up to a long-term problem for companies that have frontline workers, and that if they don't offer transportation, they are going to completely lose their workforce. What's the link between that? So one, if you're earning between 15 and $20 an hour, and you're working full-time, it's likely that you're spending somewhere between 25 and 35% of your income on transportation. Becomes a huge percentage of your expense, your household expense. Now put that person in a job that's 30 minutes or more away from where you live. You can look outside of Columbus, all of the surrounding counties, there are a ton of manufacturing logistics companies where their employees have to cross a county line to get to work. There is no public transit that follows that. Now there's, they're working on some legislation that's gonna make it easier for public transit agencies to share costs. But right now, public transit, nowhere in the country really crosses a county line. And so the companies are being placed in tax abated areas where the workforce doesn't live and they have to go find urban areas where there is the density of people that can take those jobs. Really interesting. So, okay, so now you guys kind of hit this pocket. What changed within the company? Did you have to realign to this? Did everything that you were doing before kind of fall in line or what did that look like? Well, you know, we were down to bare bones during COVID, so we had to kind of build our team back up. We hired an awesome CTO, Adil Syed, who helped us build our product. We had to go and prove that there were customers outside of just Ohio. You know, at the time we were only in Ohio. So we had to go prove that this wasn't an Ohio problem and we had to figure out how to operate in other markets. And so from 20 to 21, we learned how to expand without having to buy more vehicles and how to operate other states. And then in 2020, we really focused on our ICP of manufacturing logistics and other frontline workers and tried to land and expand with the existing customers. So to take somebody that had one site and see how many new sites could we get them to open up. Which is a totally different go-to-market strategy, correct? A little bit. Yeah, we had to build our sales organization so that we could have a deep pipeline of companies across the country. So, you know, we built the performance marketing function. We figured out how to do lead generation and email marketing. And then we learned that the biggest thing we have to do is educate HR, because even though we know they have this problem, their executives aren't aware of this problem and they're not going to spend the money for our solution unless they really understand that this is a problem that, that we can solve. How did you guys do that? How did you change your messaging in order to accomplish that goal? So we built this product called a commuter analysis, and it allows us to take in a spreadsheet of an employer's a list of employee home addresses. And so by intaking that data, we're able to predict which employees need transportation, who could ride public transit, how much are they spending on the commute? 
and really quantify the cost of transportation to a company. And we found that for every open job, companies are losing somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000 a month. And we found companies that had 100, 200 open jobs losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month because they couldn't fill those positions. So they had no idea about this. They anecdotally knew. Okay. They knew like, hey, sometimes people don't show up because they have car trouble. They didn't know if it's an excuse or not. They knew that like, yeah, people don't travel that far, but they didn't really understand the cost of it. And one of the reasons is because they're not allowed to know anything about their transportation. Every company uses on their job description or job application, it says, do you have reliable transportation? And companies are not legally allowed to ask if you own a car. So that means that they're not even asking if they can help you. And they just put that off on the individual. They collect no data on it. So they really didn't even understand the scope of the problem. Are you familiar with Challenger Sale? I love Challenger Sale. It's a great book. This seems like the absolute perfect use case. It's my favorite sales methodology. I think it's the best, yeah. Well, for to clarify, it's the best for something like this. So for our listeners that are, are unfamiliar, Challenger Sale is you're essentially, the easiest way I could say it is instead of when you're going in and talking with somebody and asking questions and them saying, oh, yeah, no, you really understand our problem. You present it in a way and you teach them something where they sit back and say, Ah oh, man, I never thought about it like that. I have to assume you got a lot of those. Was a lot of I never thought about it like that when you started showing this data. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, I was blown away how every time we show someone a map of where their employees live, they say to us, "We've never looked at the data this way. We've never considered that we're asking our employees to spend thirty percent of what we pay them just to get here." So interesting and. When you can do that successfully, your deal sizes go way up because now you're talking about a you're talking about something that's more transformational than it is an incremental gain. So I think that's pretty amazing. How did you have to evolve as a CEO as you've kind of grown now to this next stage? I think the biggest learning was probably going from pre to post Series A. Why is that? Well. The scale of a business is so much more having to build a really great leadership team and having to be comfortable doing less and leading more. You know, I was very hands-on early on. And for the business to scale, I have to operate differently. What are some of the things that, how have you went about doing that? What are some things that you've kind of implemented or read or resources that you've used uh, in order to up kind of upscale yourself as a CEO and founder? So I've got myself a, an executive coach that helps a lot, giving me guidance on you know how to manage a board of directors, how to think about communications to your investors and your team. I've talked to a lot of other founders that have gotten to a later stage, and they've kind of explained to me their own evolutions, when to know to take a break. You know, there's a lot of times that you can like feel a certain way about the business, but it's really, you just need to take a break. You need to take like half a day off and go away from the business for a little bit. So it's so true. Founders, executives, CEOs, pretty much like, you feel like you never can take that break. And then the worst thing that you could do is take the break and then be connected 24 seven because you're not getting the benefits of that break. What I love that you said is, you just said a half day. It doesn't have to be a two week. You don't have to go on a retreat. I'm not saying don't do that. If you have the capabilities to do it and the business is able to do it, great, do it. But like just a half day can be enough to, because you're probably thinking about this 24 seven is my guess. Is that fair to say? Of course. 
<laughs> of course. <laughs> so, you know, as you're building this, what's next? What do you see next for share mobility? I want to make transportation as an employee benefit as common as health insurance. And one of the big next steps for us is getting legislation passed for Ohio that's going to create an incentive for companies that provide employee transportation. Right now, there is no state that incentivizes companies to pay for employee transportation. In Brazil, companies are legally required to provide employee transportation. Google has been doing this for a decade with the Google bus where they provide transportation. For us to go from the early adopters to a less innovative portion of the market, we need to get a subsidy that's going to incentivize the companies to get started. By having this subsidy, we'll be able to get enough companies on that our scale will reduce the costs greater than the tax incentive that we have. And my goal is to get HR departments to be offering employee transportation of any type. I want them offering the bus. I want them offering carpooling. And I absolutely want them to have share mobility when those other options are not available. But if we could get every company to offer commuter benefits within five years, every employee would be introduced to a different way to commute. Because that's about the average turnover of all of our workforce. So if we got every company in Ohio to put into the new hire packet, here are options that are alternatives to driving. Within five years, we could make a massive impact on the workforce. I love it. That's so interesting. Last question. If you can have a conversation with your younger self, age, totally up to you, what would that conversation be? What advice would you give them? So I would go back and talk to the college, Ryan, as I'm starting my first company, it was called Ohio Noise Booking, and we did band bookings. I would tell myself to go meet other entrepreneurs sooner. I read the books. I watched the videos. I didn't go meet the people. And I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur until the day that I met entrepreneurs who gave me the blueprint. And if 20-year-old Ryan when I was at Ohio Dominican, would have gone out and met other entrepreneurs, I would have been able to start on that path almost a decade sooner. And one of the things I try to do is go to the universities to go meet people who want to be entrepreneurs so I could be that for them. Because I've had a ton of people that did that for me. And I hope I can help other entrepreneurs start earlier what we need to do for the next generation of entrepreneurs is challenge them to build businesses that matter. You can look at the last 20 years of innovation, and we've had a lot of great minds work on things that don't matter all of that much. It can consume our attention with clicks, but it doesn't make our world better. I think this generation that's coming up now that's in college than will be in college, my kids, I think they have an opportunity to innovate in a really meaningful way and build technologies and companies that change with the way we live in a positive way. And I'm, I'm really excited about what this generation is going to do. I love it. Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Callan. I appreciate the conversation. I hope you enjoyed Ryan and I's conversation. I loved hearing all the stories about the rebound that they had. And it is so clear how passionate he is about the problem that they're solving. If you want to learn more about Ryan, you could find him on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you could find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. 
Thanks for listening and I'll see everybody next week.